Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. And so, just a quick correction or clarification before we begin. In the last episode, the one where I discussed the recent backlash Sam Harris received for some comments he made on a podcast called Trigonometry uh, regarding internet censorship and that kind of thing, well, I stated that I didn't think that Twitter was a necessity, and I still think that to, you know, a degree or in a sense. But hopefully I didn't come across as being too glib, because I thought about it after the fact, and I think there is a really valuable use for social media that I've mentioned in the past. I think Twitter and other social media platforms can be an important tool for highlighting human rights issues and shining a light on injustices abroad. I know there have been times when people living under oppressive regimes have used social media to, you know, show what's going on in their part of the world, uh, what they or their people are being subjected to, shining a light on human rights abuses, raising awareness for political prisoners, etc., when they otherwise might not be able to. So in that that sense, I think social media can be very important, but I think there's a difference between that and using it to, you know, bicker and feud and shitpost, uh, post memes and bikini photos or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think people should be able to do all of that. Um, I was just addressing the question of whether or not uh, Twitter is quote-unquote necessary or should be treated as a quote-unquote crucial piece of public infrastructure. As Sam couched it during his appearance, I don't think he personally thinks it's a crucial piece of uh, public infrastructure, but he used that phrasing while, you know, trying to make a point. But anyway, enough about that. Let's get started. So it's going to be a news story episode. And I have to admit, and this is no way to get people excited about an episode, but I think the first story I picked doesn't necessarily seem quite as exciting or newsworthy to me as it first did. As many of you probably know, I work construction or general contracting more specifically with or for my brother. <laughs> and why am, I, why am I laughing about my horrible day job? And hopefully he doesn't listen to this. And he plays this uh, local AM news st uh, station all day. And my ears suddenly perked up last week when I heard this story about how Saudi Arabia and some other neighboring Gulf countries were demanding that Netflix remove content that they see as being immoral or conflicting with Islamic values. And I'm not sure why I found the story so compelling at first. Maybe in part it was simply due to the fact uh, that it has to do with religion to some degree, Islam. And it was being treated like a major story by mainstream news outlets. And don't get me wrong, I think it is important to report on and inform people about censorship taking place, whether it be at home or abroad. But when I later sat down and started working on the show outline... I thought Saudi Arabia wanting to censor what they see as decadent Western content, why would this be a surprise to anyone? Now, if Saudi Arabia was trying to force Netflix to censor or remove content worldwide or in general, then I think for me at least that would be a bigger story. But as far as I can tell, and I could be wrong, 
It seems the changes they're requesting would only apply to their particular region. And I think Netflix's, is that grammatically correct? Netflix's? It sounds weird. But their available catalog already varies from region to region. Because I know some people complain about certain shows or movies not being available in their country or area, and they have to try to find ways around it. I personally don't have Netflix, so I don't know firsthand. I tend to use Prime Video, which probably isn't as good, but I'm already paying for Amazon Prime, which seems to be getting more expensive every year. I believe when I started it was $99 a year, but this past summer I think they bumped it up to around $140. It's getting crazy, and if they raise it again next year, I don't know if I'll stick with it. And there's a lot of junk on Prime Video, but once in a while you'll get a good show like The Boys. Um, yeah, my pet peeve with Prime Video is as a horror enthusiast, sometimes you'll see this awesome poster art, you know, or, or an awesome thumbnail that makes it look like it's going to be this great horror movie. And then you start playing it and uh, it's, it's absolute garbage. It's some low budget, like asylum film or something like that. That's uh, my personal pet peeve. Uh, but as uh, someone with a design background, you know, kudos on the, uh, on the poster art. But I'm digressing, so why don't I read a bit from uh, this article? And so it's from CNBC, and it's dated Wednesday, September 7th. So, wow, just about a week ago, um, I began recording this episode yesterday on the 13th. And it uh, looks like it's by someone named Natasha Turok, T-U-R-A-K. Turok the Destroyer. That'd be a good name for a barbarian. Uh, not, not to be confused with Frank Turek. Um, a uh, Christian apologist who really used to annoy the hell out of me, uh, who, um, who went up against the uh, late, great Christopher Hitchens. Anyway, yet another unnecessary digression. So the article's entitled Saudi Arabia and Gulf Neighbors Threaten Netflix Over Content That Violates Islamic Values. Saudi Arabia and five other Gulf Arab countries issued a joint statement demanding that Netflix remove content they say, in quotes, violates Islamic and societal values and principles, Saudi media has reported. The statement said the streaming giant's material was in breach of government regulations, though it did not make specific reference to which topics or shows broke those rules. It's widely believed, however, and voiced by local media and officials, that Netflix shows featuring homosexual characters, same-sex kissing, and children portrayed in a sexual light are the targets of the directive. And that last part, the complaint about children being portrayed in a sexual light, which I would imagine most of us would find inappropriate, unless, I don't know, it was geared towards or trying to educate uh, adolescents or teenagers going through puberty or something. I don't know what age children they're talking about. But right away, it made me think of that controversy. When was that? Like a year or so ago? But Netflix caught some heat, or a significant amount of heat or backlash, for airing this controversial foreign film. I think it was called Cuties, and it was purported to depict young girls in an overly, you know, sexualized light. 
I had no desire to watch it, so I don't know how bad it actually was. Um, but yeah, it was very controversial. Um, it was all over the news. Everyone was talking about it. Um, but I mean, that might be one area where I actually think, uh, Saudi Arabia has a point or a right to be concerned or whatever. But the stuff about gay characters and same-sex kissing, you guys know me. I'm a left-leaning guy. I'm very supportive of the LGBT community or LGBT rights. So that stuff obviously doesn't bother me in the slightest. But I'll continue with the article. So it goes on. The move was taken, in quotes here, in light of the recent observation that the platform was broadcasting visual material and content which violates content controls in GCC countries. The statement by the Saudi General Commission for Audiovisual Media in the GCC Committee of Electronic Media Officials said Tuesday, the content, quote-unquote, and I know this is a bit redundant, uh, violates Islamic and societal values and principles. As such, the platform was contacted to remove this content, including content directed at children and to ensure adherence to the laws. The GCC, or Gulf Cooperation Council, is comprised of the largely conservative Muslim-majority states of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman. Homosexuality is criminalized in these countries and can be punished by fines, prison time, or even the death penalty. The authorities also threaten legal action if Netflix fails to adhere to its demand. And here's a quote regarding that, and parts of it are kind of awkwardly worded, I imagine because it's been translated from another tongue or language. All legal measures will be taken to protect the kingdom's sovereignty, citizens, and residents from any intellectual attack aimed at affecting its societies, plural, value, safety of upbringing their generations, and protecting them from harmful content. Ezra Asari, I think, Asari, Asari, perhaps, uh, CEO of the Saudi General Commission, or Saudi General Commission, for audiovisual media. And I'll try not to spend too much more time on this story, but the article does then explore the question of whether or not Saudi Arabia may possibly block or ban Netflix. And so it says Saudi state news channel Al Akbariya, I think it is, uh, TV released a televised report on the topic on Tuesday featuring clips from the Netflix animated show Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Had no idea that was even a thing. Uh, the report from the state network showed a blurred scene of two female characters expressing their love for one another and kissing. I was about to make a, a really inappropriate joke about how you can find, uh, also find videos of women expressing their love for one another in my browser history. Awful, awful, I know. But it may or may not be true. Always digging a hole for myself. Anyway, Al Akbaria posted its report on its official Twitter account, which has 1.4 million followers, with the caption, Netflix promotes child homosexuality under a cinematic cover. Will, will hashtag Netflix be blocked in Saudi Arabia soon? Uh, and then another tweet from the state network read, Netflix threatens the healthy upbringing of children and spreads immoral messages. A video in its tweet 
tweet featured the hashtags hashtag cancel Netflix and hashtag boycott Netflix. And going by that, I don't know if the two female characters from that Jurassic Park cartoon who are pictured kissing, if they're supposed to be underage or not. Uh, I have no idea whether or not that's appropriate. I guess would depend on whether you think it's appropriate to have two opposite sex, you know, teenagers or whatever age the characters are kissing. Uh, I mean, if they're if they're um, preteens and they're kissing romantically, that'd be uh, I think we could all say that's inappropriate. If they're showing two teens kissing, I don't know if you know what kind of kiss it is. But ironically, or perhaps not so ironically, since they both have conservative values regarding sex, there's probably a lot of uh, conservative Christians who are on the same page as. Uh, as Saudi Arabia regarding this uh, Netflix situation. Me personally, and I just, uh, I looked up that story about the controversial Camp Cretaceous kiss, and it looks like they're CGI characters, and I can't tell if they're supposed to be grown women or teenagers. I have no idea what's going on. But as a left-leaning guy who's, you know, pro-LGBT equality or rights, etc., uh, representation, I have, I have no problem with two CGI, you know, they almost look like, they look like they could be like moms or something. <laughs> they look developed, whatever they are. I have no problem with, with uh, two CGI women or whatever kissing. Um, as a parent, I guess that's something you'll have to decide for yourself. If you don't like it, I guess don't let your kids watch uh, Camp Cretaceous. But enough about that story. Like I was saying earlier, I'm sure most people aren't too surprised at the idea that Saudi Arabia might want to censor Western content. All right, on to the next story. So could it be Britney Spears is now an atheist? And so this story is coming from uh, Hemant Mehta's Only Sky channel or page or whatever, and it's dated September 6th. So, man, I really gotta hustle and try to get these episodes out uh, earlier. I feel bad that, you know, I find these stories I get excited about, and then I don't get around to finishing the episode until a week later. So I'm going to try to remedy that, you know. I don't want to make a liar out of myself, but I'm going to try to do my best to get these, uh, get these shows out earlier for you guys. But let's dig in. So the headline or title is... Britney Spears no longer believes in God. I'm an atheist, y'all. And it actually says that. And here's a quote. I don't believe in God anymore because of the way my children and my family have treated me, Spears said. And so in fairness, I understand that adversity in general can be enough to make, you know, some people question whether or not there's a God. But yeah, it does seem kind of a weird reason to stop believing in God because of the way your children and your family have treated you. And I think that's going to be kind of the point of Hemet's uh, article, is that it is kind of a relatively weak reason to stop believing in God. And, uh, you know, it could kind of make it reflect poorly on atheism or atheists and feed into the stereotype that atheists stop believing in God because, you know, not because they came to that conclusion based on critical thinking and well-reasoned arguments, but because, oh, something bad happened to me, I'm mad at God, or whatever, you know what I mean? 
But anyway, the story begins. Britney Spears said in an Instagram audio story yesterday that she now considers herself an atheist. Her explanation, however, feeds right into flawed stereotypes Christians often have about why people stop believing in God. Most atheists have a story about why they stopped believing in God. Perhaps something caused them to begin questioning their faith. But they only took that final leap after a lot of critical thinking. Yet when they tell people they no longer believe in God, the assumption is that something bad happened to them. That's it, a logical thought process always takes a back seat to blaming God for some kind of tragedy. Hell, there are entire books written by Christian apologists about theodicy, offering explanations for why God lets bad things happen to good people, as if that's the only reason people have for becoming non-religious. That's why Britney Spears' revelation could be a double-edged sword. Federline, remember that guy, Kevin Federline? Uh, Federline said in a separate interview that Spears' father, quote-unquote, saved her with the conservatorship. Spears responded yesterday with a now-deleted audio-only clip on Instagram. Without getting into all the drama, here's the portion that's relevant for our purposes. And so I'll read the text excerpt. So Jaden, and that's her son, as you undermine my behavior, just like my whole family always has with, quote-unquote, hope she gets better, I will pray for her. Pray for what? That I keep working so I can pay off mom's legal fees and her house? Do you guys want me to get better so I can continue to give your dad 40000 grand a month? Damn, imagine that, 40000 a month. Or is the reason behind you guys deciding to be hateful is because it's actually over in two years and you don't get anything? It saddens me not one of you have valued me as a person. You've witnessed me, how my family has been to me, and that's all you know. Like I said, I feel you all secretly like to say something's wrong with me. Honestly, my dad needs to be in jail for the rest of his life. But like I said, God would not allow that to happen to me if a God existed. I don't believe in God anymore because of the way my children and my family have treated me. There is nothing to believe anymore. I'm an atheist, y'all. And then uh, Hemet says, those last lines will have Christian apologists salivating. And he's, uh, he's right. That'd be a fun shirt, though. I'm an atheist, y'all. But uh, I think the problem is, you know, that would be such a weak foundation for your disbelief that what, you know, your life starts to turn around and suddenly God has blessed me and you're a believer again. I don't want to seem like I'm beating up on her, though, because I do sincerely feel bad for her. Um, I mean, I imagine the truth could be somewhere in the middle. The idea that she has legitimate, you know, mental health or emotional issues and that her family are possibly taking advantage of her. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I imagine both are true to some degree. And I imagine that her, um, her issues have probably been exacerbated by the fact that she hasn't been able to be in control of her own life. But I think it's been a while since I've discussed my own reasons for becoming a non-believer on the show. Uh, you know, I've known suffering in my life, like all of us have, uh, you know, to varying degrees. 
But even when I go back to my childhood where I wrestled with a lot of sickness and probably had undiagnosed mood disorders like depression and anxiety, personal suffering was never my reason for doubting the existence of God that I can remember. And in fact, I was raised Catholic, and when I was young, uh, the idea that there might not be a God or an afterlife absolutely terrified me. I could think of nothing worse than the idea that there may be, you know, no higher power, and that when you die, that's it. I found that deeply disturbing, and that was the cause of a lot of kind of dark nights of the soul I went through when I was young, the idea that that might be true. But the way I used to word it on the show is that it was like my reason, you know, slowly eroded my faith. Um, even from a young age, I was, I was interested in things like uh, mythology, comparative religion, ancient history. And the more I read up on that stuff, the more it seemed clear to me that religions were man-made. You know, there's religions all over the world that people believe in just as fervently as Christians believe in their religion. Uh, some of those religions, like Buddhism and Hinduism, are older than Christianity. Not that that necessarily means they're right just because they're older or they're better. But the point is, I don't think any of them have a monopoly on the truth. There's a lot of wisdom and beauty in different religions, but at the end of the day, they're man-made. I don't see any divine inspiration at work. And these religions often contradict each other externally and sometimes contradict themselves internally, like certain contradictions you find in the Bible. And I remember I started binge-watching religious documentaries, you know, documentaries on the history of religion, uh, histories, uh, the history of the early church, uh, I used to love watching shows like A&E's Mysteries of the Bible. And ironically, I don't think these shows were trying to, you know, make atheists of people. Um, to the contrary, I think they were trying to be respectful of religion and just be very thorough and educational. And yet, uh, some of what I learned from those shows and documentaries continued to... Uh, you know, increase my doubts and chip away at whatever remaining shreds of faith I had. And I already knew this, but the emphasis on the fact that, you know, the Bible isn't one book by one author that wafted down from heaven, you know, written by the hand of God. Both the Old and New Testaments are anthologies, um, you know, composed of or comprised of books written by various authors. And uh, learning about the existence of interpolations, basically later things that scribes or editors added on. Like one story that's uh, a very beloved story from the New Testament, the story of the woman taken into adultery. Uh, it's believed by scholars that that was a later interpolation. And then learning about things like doublets, that there's these kind of redundant or repeat stories in the Bible, or contradictions like the fact that John has Jesus dying on a different day than he does in the Synoptics, the Synoptic Gospels being Mark, Matthew, and Luke, uh, Synoptic from the Greek meaning to see alike. Uh, it's thought that the, the Gospel of John has a different tone or style than the other three Gospels. It has more of a kind of, more of like a, a mystical, contemplative 
tone or feel to it. And although my personal suffering may not have been a reason for my loss of faith or belief, the problem of suffering in general, I think, is still a factor, one of the reasons why I doubt the existence of God. You know, and there's the whole idea that Hemet touched on of theodicy, trying to explain or reconcile the existence of a good God with the existence of suffering or evil. And sometimes apologists will try to bring up free will. Oh, God's such a nice guy that he gave us the gift of free will, and it's not his fault if we abuse it to do, you know, visit evil or harm upon our fellow human beings. And I think there's a couple of problems with that argument. It covers man's inhumanity, the man, but it doesn't cover things like sickness, disease, natural disasters, the horror of the food chain, which is a big one for me as an animal lover. I have trouble wrapping my head around how a a good or decent god would or could create a world where life forms feed on one another for sustenance. An apologist might respond, well, original sin, it's a fallen world. We lowly humans, you know, ate the wrong kind of fruit, you know, which is a monstrous idea. Um, and not all Christians take uh, the, you know, the fall in the garden narrative, literally. But the idea that two people at the beginning of history, you know, ate the wrong kind of fruit. Now all of humanity has to pay for it with uh, pain and suffering and mortality, you know, doesn't seem very fair. Um, uh, even if you don't take it literally, still the idea that somehow all this suffering is our fault, we brought it upon ourselves, uh, also a monstrous idea. And I should state up front that in fairness, uh, evolution and belief in God aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. There are plenty of theists, including Christians, who believe in evolution. But I have to say that there is something about it that um, makes it yet another contributing factor to my lack of belief. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is natural selection gives us a very simple and elegant explanation of how you get uh, highly advanced or complex life forms from simple life, uh, life forms. And another is simply that I think evolution kind of puts things in context. When you take a step back and you look at the process all of these vast eons of life forms rising and dying, uh, you know, ripping each other apart for sustenance once again. I think it's roughly 99% of all species that have ever existed are now extinct. So just these vast eons of life forms, some of them absolutely monstrous, like some of the dinosaurs and you know, titanic marine reptiles, etc., um, coming into existence to rip each other apart, reproduce and die, their entire species dying off. And then, was it maybe quarter of a million years ago, you get modern humans. Uh, but before that, there was this kind of, you know, almost endless uh, nightmare of, uh, of life feeding on life, and which still goes on. Um, so, yeah. Those are some of my main reasons for doubting the existence of God or being a non-believer. Okay, so this next one has nothing to do with atheism or religion, but it is science-based. So atheism, reason, science, uh, whatever, I just wanted to cover it. I heard about this one on the local news as well. Uh, apparently a group of scientists 
thought they may have detected a megalodon, an extinct species of shark thought to resemble the modern great white, but greatly dwarfing the great white in size. I think great whites can get up to about 13 to 16 feet, something like that. Supposedly, megalodons could measure well over 60 feet, so if you have a fear of sharks like me, this thing would have been a titanic ocean-dwelling nightmare. But don't worry, wasn't a megalodon, turned out to just be a giant school of mackerel. Not that you'd actually have to worry, you know, it's not like it was going to magically come up through your toilet or show up on your doorstep like a Jehovah's Witness. But I'll read a bit from this article, and this is from WBZ News Radio 1030. This is actually the companion website to the... Uh, local news station my brother makes me listen to every uh, work day. And it's entitled Return of the Megalodon in Rhode Island. Nope, just mackerel. And it's dated September 8th. And so the article begins, New Shoreham, Rhode Island. Has the terror of Earth's ancient oceans returned? A recent research trip off the coast of Block Island yielded some briefly surprising results for a team of scientists from the Atlantic Shark Institute. The Institute said its team was doing sonar scans when they spotted the impossible, an image that appeared to be the shape of an ancient megashark, the Megalodon, and they also give the scientific or taxonomical name Otodus Megalodon, I think it is. Um, I, I believe that means big tooth. The image was about 50 yards long. The school of fish orbited the research boat for about 15 minutes before swimming off. And there appears to be a couple of typos or grammatical errors here. It says, then image then, it probably meant then the image, started to shift and the researchers quickly realized, and here's another one, was it was, probably means that it should be that it was, just a school of Atlantic mackerel. The megalodon went extinct more than three million years ago, and as they put it, quote-unquote, will likely stay that way. Ironically, the megalodon is an ancient species of mackerel shark, which eat mackerel among other fish. Yeah, so the same family as the great white. I know the great white is also considered a mackerel shark. The weird thing is, this is a group of scientific researchers, so you wouldn't think, you know, ideally, that they'd be that gullible or jump to conclusions. Did they really think that, you know, they were being circled by a megalodon or that they had, you know, discovered a megalodon uh, when they know, as they state, that the thing went extinct three million years ago? Um, and they're probably used to seeing large schools of fish on their, you know, radar or whatever or sonar. Uh, yeah, I, I found that a little strange. I wonder what was going on there in their heads. Did they really think even momentarily that they had found a megalodon? Um, imagine if they did. Imagine uh, the fear of, of thinking that thing was uh, circling you. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just really wanted it to be true. They wanted to discover some extinct animal. I, I have no idea. But to be honest, my own fear of sharks actually seems to be waning or fading as I get older. It's still there a bit, but I find it giving way more to a kind of fascination or admiration. Part of it might be an extension of my deepening general love and respect for animals and the natural world. Uh, sharks actually have much more to fear from us than, uh, than us of them. 
And I think they say you're literally more likely to be struck by lightning than to be bitten by a shark. And I guess if that's not comforting enough, there's always the option of just staying out of the uh, staying out of the water. Um, but even though the fear of sharks in general might be, uh, you know, ira- or is irrational, I think it's, I don't want to say it's irrational because obviously it's probably smart to be somewhat afraid of predatory animals in certain situations. But I think having a fear of an animal like that, even though most likely you're never going to even encounter one, uh, is understandable in the sense that I've always thought there may be this deeply ingrained evolutionary fear of predatory animals we may have. And I think seeing or envisioning or thinking about certain animals can just kind of hit that nerve including certain species of shark like the great white with their fierce appearance, the cold beady eyes, and giant tooth-filled maws. Um, And probably also just, you know, psychologically, the idea that when one attacks you, you're literally out of your element. You're in the water, away from land, so kind of helpless in a way while getting attacked by a predator at the same time. So even though it's something you'll probably never have to worry about, I think it's nevertheless still understandable that just the thought, the idea of it might still be enough to make your hair stand on end, you know? And I keep calling them predators, which they are, but we're actually not their prey, at least not intentionally. Uh, They say when a shark attacks a human, it's usually a case of mistaken identity. They confuse us with a prey animal like a seal. And when they realize we're not a part of their usual menu, they usually, you know, spit you out, let you go and swim off. But unfortunately, you know, one or two exploratory bites is still enough to kill you or maim you for life when you're talking about a large animal like a great white. But I used to think that the seemingly inherent or deeply ingrained fear of certain kinds of predatory animals was a given, probably because it always seemed so, you know, deeply ingrained or deep-rooted in myself. Uh, the fear of sharks, even fear of prehistoric marine animals like plesiosaurs, etc. Anything kind of large, monstrous, and sea-dwelling, especially with lots of teeth. Uh, but I guess it's more complicated than just being something we're born with. I think they've done studies where they found that Apparently, infants or small kids don't seem to be necessarily born with an innate fear of snakes or that kind of thing, but it may be the case that our brains are pre-wired to quickly develop a fear of certain kinds of animals. It's long been observed that primates, or at least certain primates, seem to demonstrate a deep fear of snakes. And I was recently reading an old article about how scientists studying Japanese macaques, I think it was, found that certain parts of their brains became more active when shown images of snakes as opposed to other objects. Um, I actually found the article. It's from the Los Angeles Times, and it goes all the way back to 2013. We're not born with a fear of snakes, but it sure seems to develop early. Now scientists may be closer to explaining why ophidiophobia, I think it is, ranks among the top fears of humans and seems to be shared with other primates. Researchers inserted probes into the brains of Japanese macaques, as an animal lover, that's always problematic animal testing, and found that neurons in a part of their brain that controls visual attention were more strongly and quickly activated in response to images of snakes versus other objects. 
The results published online Monday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences appear to support a theory that early primates developed advanced perception as an evolutionary response to being prey, not as an adaptation that may have made foraging or hunting easier. Though fear of snakes may not be innate, noticing them more than other phenomena may be hardwired by evolution, said Lynn Isbell, an evolutionary biologist from UC Davis and one of the authors of the paper, that heightened attention research has shown can lead to early and resilient learned behavior, such as fear-mediated avoidance, in other words, getting out of the way of snakes. Ironically, I've never really been afraid of snakes specifically. If I suddenly notice one gliding through the grass near me, my adrenaline kicks in a bit and I, you know, jump to the side and get out of the way. But I'm not overly afraid, uh, you know, of them and they don't haunt my nightmares the way sharks and prehistoric sea creatures do. I remember watching a documentary once about dragons. No, they're not real. At least I don't think so. But it was exploring the concept of the dragon, where it comes from, etc. And there was one scholar being interviewed who suggested that the Western dragon, at least, was kind of like a hybrid or composite creature, possessing the traits of several different predatory animals that we fear. It's reptilian, but you could interpret the fangs and claws as being like those of a great cat, like a lion or tiger. Um, they're often depicted as having the leathery wings of a bat. Not that bats prey on humans, although so-called vampire bats will sometimes try to feed on human blood. Uh, but for whatever reason, in the West at least, you know, there does seem to be a fear of bats. I believe in certain parts of the East, uh, they're seen as symbols of good luck. The Eastern view of the dragon is much more positive, too. Then there's the idea that the dragon, as well as other mythical creatures, may have been inspired by, you know, ancient people finding dinosaur bones and not knowing what the heck they were. I've heard that several times. I don't know what the scholarly view of that theory is, uh, you know, if it holds water or not. I've specifically heard the story um, over and over again about how woolly mammoth skulls with the big massive nasal cavity may have inspired the uh, the myth of the Cyclops, you know, this big one-eyed monster. Um, intriguing. I'm, I'm not sure what the, like I said, what the scholarly opinion is of that. But when it comes to sharks, for people in my age group, I'm a Gen Xer, there's supposedly the Jaws effect too. Uh, you know, it's been proposed that that film single-handedly sent the fear of sharks through the roof. Uh, I can remember seeing it as a little kid. And if I wasn't scared of sharks before, I definitely, wa I definitely was afterward. And I believe the author of the book, Peter Benchley, would eventually state, paraphrasing, that he regretted the way the book and movie demonized sharks. Uh, but yeah, uh, Jaws and the Exorcist really did a number on me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I used to be really afraid of sharks. It's so embarrassing to admit, but maybe some people can relate. Uh, I can remember when, you know, I, I was a, a kid, uh, there being a point, and this still might happen sometimes, but a point where even stepping into a pool of water, you know, into a pool or into the shower would suddenly make me think of a shark, a great white with its maw open coming at me, and I'd feel a little rush of fear or adrenaline. It's completely irrational. Um, I knew there wasn't a shark, you know, in my, in my above-ground pool or in the shower, 
but I think on a psychological level, it was just the association of sharks and or, you know, with water that makes your mind fleetingly go there. And this is super embarrassing, but I can remember as a little kid, I'd sometimes be drinking like a dark liquid, like grape Kool-Aid or Coca-Cola or whatever in a transparent glass, you know, and I'd be lifting the glass of dark liquid to my mouth and I'd suddenly think of like sharks and sea monsters teeming around and I'd get that same kind of effect. Wouldn't it be kind of cool, though, if you looked at a little glass and saw a bunch of uh, sharks and plesiosaurs and stuff swimming around? I know, I know, I'm insane. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, on that note, I guess I'll call it a wrap. As always, thanks, everyone, for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support what I'm doing here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.